Let's be honest. Customer reviews and testimonials do influence buying decisions, and an online review can make or break the path to purchase. According to one study, 76% of U.S. consumers trust online reviews as much as recommendations from family and friends. So it should come as no surprise that reviews and testimonials attract considerable regulatory attention and that they raise a lot of questions for brand marketers who see real opportunity in leveraging them. I'm Leanne Lee, and you're listening to Ad Attorneys at Law, our series devoted to all things advertising, marketing, and digital media law. Joining me today is partner and co-leader of Baker Hostetler's advertising, marketing, and digital media team, Amy Ralph Mudge. Amy represents world-class brands and fields questions about reviews and testimonials all the time. She's represented clients in cutting-edge, first-impression FTC and NAD challenges over the use of consumer reviews. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thanks so much, Leanne. I'm happy to be here. So to kick us off, can you tell us why advertisers care about consumer reviews? Sure. Well, consumer reviews are really the new good housekeeping seal of approval. The move to e-commerce has been happening for some time, but it has been dramatically expedited with COVID. Um, And at least in this moment, some consumers are shopping even exclusively online. And even when we return to feeling safe in visiting stores, consumers do research online, both for price comparisons, but also to read those reviews. Uh, Consumers more and more expect e-commerce sites to post consumer reviews for each product that's sold. Um, And they're actually suspicious of buying products or buying from a website where there are no or few reviews or where there are reviews, but they're only glowing reviews because of concerns with fake reviews or review manipulation. Um, There really has never been a more important time to encourage consumers to write reviews, get them posted quickly after reviewing them. But enforcers and regulators are also looking with greater frequency at review practices. So it's also really important now for advertisers and advertisers' lawyers to take a hard look um, at how companies are soliciting, moderating, and posting reviews. Well, speaking of that, what sorts of legal issues can arise within the context of a consumer review? Well, for guidance, we start with the Federal Trade Commission's testimonial and endorsement guides. These have been around for a long time um, and are our source of inspiration and guidance for things like um, expert reviews, uh, celebrity reviews or endorsements, um, and they also apply to regular old consumer reviews as well. There's really three guiding principles. The first is any material connection between a brand and a reviewer that wouldn't be expected by a reader must be disclosed. Uh, And this is, you know, an example would be if a reviewer is a paid brand ambassador, uh, that that has to be clear. The review should also reflect the real, um, authentic experiences of the reviewer. And then if any review is going to be incorporated into advertising, it shouldn't include any product claims that the brand could not substantiate directly. Now, most of what we focus on uh, in the space so far really revolves around that material connection issue. When does a disclosure need to be made and how? And the FTC's concern here is, you know, giving incentives for reviews can possibly introduce bias into those reviews. And even if there isn't any bias, um, maybe it could affect the weight or the credibility 
that a reader would credit a review. So these disclosure issues are really what tend to be front and center at this point. And we are seeing more cases at the FTC. We're also seeing more interest and focus on consumer reviews at the National Advertising Division, or or NAD, the self-regulatory arm of the Better Business Bureau. And we're even beginning to see review issues appear in private cases. Uh, including consumer class actions and competitor challenges under the Lanham Act. And we really expect this trend will continue. So let's talk about some scenarios. If an advertiser wants to use a great consumer quote in its own advertising, is that legal? Um, Sure, but with some caveats. Um, So this idea is is taking a portion of a review or review and, and highlighting it, maybe on your website, maybe in a print ad, and we first want to start by looking at the quoted portion of the review and making sure that it's not taken out of context. So if the review says, I hated this product, except there was this one feature that was pretty great, um, it wouldn't be appropriate to only focus on the positive portion of that review. So even if you do excerpt, you want to make sure that you're really capturing the, the general tone of the overall review. And then again, whatever a reviewer says, it should be something that the brand can support if the brand said it directly. Um, A classic example is a reviewer says, you know, I love these weight loss shakes. I lost, um, you know, I lost 20 pounds last week. That's not something typically that a brand is going to be able to support would be expected for for, for all users. So really focusing on those product claims and making sure there's something that would be typical of of ordinary consumer use and that the brand, if they wanted to say it directly outside of a testimonial context, that they would have the substantiation or the backup to say it. And then we also need to remember there are IP issues as well as truth and advertising concerns, Um, right of publicity issues. Um, You shouldn't use a person's name or likeness, even generally a regular old person, as opposed to a celebrity without getting their permission for advertising purposes. And so getting that permission, getting a release from reviewers to use their review and advertising is a best practice. Now, sometimes this is not always possible. So in, in a case like that, if you just love a review and you can't, um, you can't reach out and get in touch with the reviewer, best to not use the reviewer's full name or any other personally identifying information, maybe excerpt it to first name and the city they're from when quoting from their review. Well, how about a situation when an advertiser gives free product samples, a sweepstakes entry, or some other incentive to users in exchange for a review? Now, could that be a problem? Um, Absolutely. Um, If there's no disclosure, this gets to the heart of that material connection piece that I mentioned a minute ago. So if a reviewer is given anything as an incentive to write that review. And if what they're given is something that is material, not de minimis, uh, then the FTC's position is that must be disclosed. Um, So if you have a sampling program, we see this a lot with new products because again, consumers expect to see reviews of products before they buy. And if a product is new to the market, there's not going to be a whole lot of consumer experience with the product. So we see these 
these sampling programs come up a lot. Amazon is a great example. They have their Vine program, perfectly legal, perfectly appropriate, as long as it's disclosed uh, that the reviewer got uh, something free in connection with, or maybe even paid in connection with giving that review. And uh, there's lots of ways of, of doing that disclosure. It can be if you send product, for example, to bloggers or to folks who host a review site, you can make the request that they include the fact um, that they had this connection with you in the review itself. If the review is on uh, your own website, then a badge can be added. Like Amazon Vine has a, a, a little logo that makes clear when a review was written as part of their, uh, as part of their sampling program. Um, so something like that to give consumers the information, ideally early in the review, something that's clear and conspicuous to make sure that something was given in exchange for a review. Um, the sweepstakes issue is an interesting one. And the FTC and the NAD have both looked at this and concluded that um, even though you're not giving someone um, actually something like free product or like payment, um, you're just giving them a chance to win something, that if a, if a sweepstakes entry for a considerable prize is given for a review, that that is a material connection that also should be disclosed. Um, that's also something that can be done fairly easily. If you say, for example, have, you know, want someone to post a review or, or post a picture of themselves wearing a product or highlighting a product um, in a post um, that you add, that you require that they add a hashtag, something along the lines of hashtag sweepstakes or hashtag name of your sweepstakes entry or something similar like that. Okay. Well, what if the advertiser takes a different approach and they give a very small coupon towards a future purchase in exchange for a review? This is really a gray area, at least right now. And you're bordering on something that maybe it said there certainly is a connection. Um, an advertiser is, is giving a consumer something, a, a coupon. But the question is really, is that something material enough to require a disclosure? And, and we see these things all the time, and it really highlights, again, the importance uh, for advertisers of collecting a large body of reviews for their products to be able to post them on their website. So oftentimes after you make a purchase, maybe a week or two later, presumably after the product's been, uh, been delivered, you might, get, uh, you might get an email or a pop-up from, from the advertiser inviting you to leave a review with a convenient link. And they might say something along the lines of, as a thanks for your review, you know, we'll give you a, a coupon towards a future purchase. Um, so far, the FTC's position is that probably should be disclosed. It's an issue, though, that they're looking at in connection with um, revisions to the testimonial and endorsement guides that are underway right now. The FTC's asked for a lot of comments from consumers and from brands alike. And one of the questions that they've asked is, do these, these small incentives um, given at the front end to solicit a review, um, do they really need to be disclosed? So we're probably going to get some more guidance on this in the, in the near future, sometime in early to mid-2021. But for, for the near term, um, until the FTC clarifies its position on this, it's always going to be a good idea to include some form of disclosure if you give anything, even something quite small, to a reviewer in exchange for a review. Sure, that makes sense. So with all of these different scenarios we've talked about, is it okay to solicit consumers 
for reviews or do they have to come in organically? Um, no, solicitation is is appropriate and it's it's probably the best way that you can get a larger body of reviews more quickly. I think it's, it's human nature. There are some people that just really do want to share their experiences, um, but those folks are probably few and far between. And, and, and getting a prompt to remind someone, hey, I sent you this product a couple of weeks ago. What do you think of it? Could you do me a solid? Could you do me a favor and write a review? Um, we see those, we, we see those invitations or solicitations more and more. And again, they're, they're absolutely appropriate. If you are giving something in exchange for that review, disclosure again is probably appropriate. If the thing you're giving is, is very, very small, maybe it's not a high, a, a super high risk at this point. Um, but something to pause and really consider. Something that we really do see though, if you do solicit consumer reviews, and you get back negative reviews, it's going to be important that you post the good, the bad, and the ugly. And this gets into the moderation process, which happens after reviews are solicited. It doesn't mean that every single review that you get has to be posted. Um, and that probably wouldn't make sense if people send reviews that are written in a foreign language, if people send reviews that are gibberish, or they send reviews in about a product they didn't even buy. Um, certainly if they contain swear words or hate speech or other things, those, those would not be appropriate to post on a website and there's no obligation on a brand to do so. That said, if a review is appropriate, it's in English, it, it doesn't have curse words, but they just don't like your product. There's been some attention and we expect to see more about these moderation processes and at least the NED has said there's an implied promise when you have reviews on your website that you are posting all relevant reviews and you're not curating just to post uh, just to post the desirable ones. So good time to take a look at your moderation guidelines and make sure that um, make sure that not just your four and five star reviews, but your one, two and three star reviews are getting posted as well. Um, you know, and as a PS, this will help consumer trust in your reviews. Um, increasing literature says that consumers are very suspicious. And if they see only four and five star reviews, they assume there's some funny business going on. And if for, for the negative reviews, if the brand actually responds and says, hey, I'm so sorry you didn't like my product, I'll direct message you separately, we'll make it right. Things like that, listening to consumer reviews and responding to them appropriately can actually increase consumer confidence in your products and your website. So it's a way to turn those bad reviews potentially into something positive. Now, let's talk about uh, employees and vendors. Can an advertiser encourage employees and vendors to post product reviews? Um, this is very tempting, uh, especially when products are new to the market. You know, you want to build up reviews in the beginning. So it, it can be done and it is fairly common. But if you're an employee of a company and you're writing review, or if you're, um, you know, if you're a, an employee of an ad agency that's been supporting the creative for a new product, that absolutely is a material connection, probably more so uh, more material um, because it's more ongoing than just getting free product or a sweepstakes entry. So if you have if you have an employment or really any kind of financial connection to a company, 
Um, if your mom is writing reviews or your relative of an independent company, disclosing that material connection um, is going to be very important. And again, how do you how do you do that? Um, probably, you know, might be a little weird to have a badge to say employee review, but typically that kind of thing is done again in the review itself. I'm so proud to work of this. I'm so proud to work at this company. I love its new product line. Um, you know, give it, I, I was lucky to be able to try this first, give it a try. You can do it with the hashtag. Um, we've seen things like hashtag employee, hashtag I work here. Things like that are ways to alert a reader that you have, you know, an, an employment or a paid connection to the company. Sure, that makes sense. So what if an advertiser wants to promote that it has more five-star reviews than competing products? Is there an issue with that? Um, this is a great question and uh, in, in a slightly different turn. So moving away from the, the material connection disclosure issue, um, We've seen some cases, they're very instructive, from the National Advertising Division involving uh, some vacuum manufacturers, Shark and Dyson, um, that, that give at least the NAD's perspective on, on highlighting your average star ratings and then highlighting how you compare in star ratings to, to a competitor. The NAD had a few concerns, uh, a few concerns with this practice, and the first was in trying to source these reviews across the web, different websites have different definition of what constitutes a five-star, four-star, three-star. Um, so what Amazon calls uh, a five-star review might be different than, um, than what Best Buy calls a five-star review. So comparing these things across reviews might not be an apples to oranges comparison. And so even if you, if you decide to compare star ratings within a single platform, um, like within an Amazon, uh, within an Amazon platform, some of these reviews may be compensated. And remember, if there is a material connection, that's, that's gotta be disclosed. And some of these five-star reviews, maybe somebody is reviewing, you know, the platform or reviewing how long it took to have a product shipped and not actually reviewing the product itself. Um, so understanding which of the reviews were written by verified buyers and which of those reviews actually focus on the product itself as opposed to some other experience with the ordering process. So all of those issues make this a more complicated exercise than simply counting up five-star reviews and comparing them. So probably a better course is to focus not on comparative claims, but to focus on um, on how many five-star reviews your products have. If you've got, you know, mo you know, mostly five stars or mostly five stars to promote that, that average, that average star rating. Um, but once again, you either want to set aside those reviews that have been compensated from your aggregation, or you need to have a disclosure that makes clear that at least some of those reviews in your set, um, um, there is a material connection between um, the reviewer and the brand. Yeah, that makes sense. And actually, I just have one last question as we wrap up. Now, what if customers post reviews on Amazon or on the brand's own website saying that the product did miraculous things that the company doesn't have support for? This gets into the issue of truth of the review and also whether there's substantiation for a review. There's one school of thought 
that will say, well, if the brand didn't encourage this, if there was nothing given for free, no payment, no material connection, that the brand really can't be responsible for what people say in reviews. Um, this is something that the FTC and the NAD is, is looking at and really considering, at least particularly if the reviews are on a brand's own website. And the thought process is, look, this is the brand's own real estate, and certainly they have control over the review portion of the website the same way they have control over, over the rest of the website. There's the Computer Decency Act, which suggests that maybe a platform doesn't have an obligation to police user-generated content. But this is really an area where the FTC and the NAD are saying, look, come on, if, the, if there are reviews that are just too good to be true and the brand does have a connection or control over them on their own website, that these are really things that, that should be removed, that shouldn't be posted. At minimum, even if you're going to leave up reviews on your website that say things that you couldn't say directly, if you take that next step and you engage in them, if you take that review and excerpt it on the main page of your web page, or if you respond um, with some kind of comment to say, so glad to hear you had such a favorable experience with my product, that's taking it to the next level. And that's something the FTC and the NED would, would absolutely say a brand would have a, an obligation to correct. So best practice is after you solicit reviews and when you're in a moderation, when you're in the moderation process, if reviews say something you just know you couldn't support and you know you couldn't state directly, best not to post those reviews on your website. If there's reviews out in the world on, on the Yelps, on the on other e-commerce platforms, that's one that the brand that the brand didn't solicit. There's not going to be that same responsibility there. But best to take a close look at the reviews that appear on the brand social media platforms, on the brand's e-commerce platforms to make sure that all of those reviews contain product attributes that can be substantiated. Well, this has been a very insightful conversation. Thank you for joining us today, Amy. Thank you so much, Leanne. I had a great time. If you have any questions for Amy, you'll find her contact information in the show notes. And if you haven't already signed up, be sure to subscribe to Baker Host's Ad Attorneys at Law newsletter and blog at bakerlaw.com. I'm Leanne Lee. Thanks for listening to Ad Attorneys at Law, Baker Host's podcast series covering all things advertising, marketing, and digital media law. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.